Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, Richard and I have a bit of a catching up episode. We talk about some of the things that are happening in the news and around the world, um, and just sort of have a bit of a venting session about some of the things that we've seen over the past uh, month or so that we haven't had a chance to discuss until now. Um, We're obviously back from a bit of a break. I hope everyone enjoyed the holidays, had a happy new year, and that you and your family are staying safe and secure amid all of the COVID madness. Um, I also just wanted to add a happy Black History Month to everyone. Obviously, sort of like what I did last year, but in recognition of the fact that at Left POC, we celebrate, discuss, and um, go over the histories of leftists of color, and particularly Black leftists on a regular basis, we um, honor this history throughout the year. So we don't necessarily see Black History Month as the only moment where we can discuss these things. It's an everyday, all year long process for us. Um, But, you know, just wanted to give that particular um, month some a little bit of a shout out out of recognition of its importance both historically and socially um, and the value that we think it still holds uh, especially as we attempt through our project to reclaim um, many of the left-leaning histories that black people in this country and elsewhere have participated in but often have not received recognition for. So anyway, uh, with that said, I'll go ahead and start the episode now. As per usual, if you are interested in learning more about the Left Pocket Project, you can find us on social media. Um, Left the Pocket Project it can be found with L-E-F-T-P-O-C. That's Left P-O-C. Um, you can find us on Patreon, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, of course, the podcast itself can be found on SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, iTunes, Um, all of the sites where you get your podcasts, we're pretty much there. Um, and if you'd like, you can go specifically to our Patreon page where you will not only find episodes, all of which are free, we don't believe in paywalls over here, um, but you can also find additional resources such as the books and, um, articles or speeches that we read for our Reading Revolution series where we read and discuss uh, works written by or that inspired leftists of color. Um, You can also find the episodes for Comrade Mommy, which is the series that I have going on. It's kind of a sub-series of Left Pocket Project about leftist parenting um, and many, many more resources over there. So definitely check that out. Um, And you can also, of course, give us a dollar or more as a donation for us to keep the project going. So that's patreon.com slash left POC, L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Anyway, on with the show. Hey, Richard. Hello. How's it going? Uh, still kicking. So it's a win. <laughs> it's a question I'm, I'm always afraid to ask now, like post-2020. It's sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I'm on the one hand, I'm laughing. On the other hand, it's really scary because we're looking at 500,000 deaths pretty much. So almost, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, last I saw, it was around 440, and it we don't really seem to be on 
any sort of path to less than around a thousand, an average of a thousand a day. And that yeah. looks to probably continue for the, most of the year. And then that's not necessarily accounting for how the new uh, mutations are going to be handled and then how those mutations will mutate within the U.S. population. <laughs> yeah, Since we I have mean, uncontrolled spread. On the one hand, so to back up a little bit, with regards to your death rate, you have a, a very low death rate. What I've seen is three to 5,000. I know there were 5,000 people who died the other day. Um, so 1,000 a day is like back when we were in, what, October or something like before Thanksgiving? Yeah, that's like it's best crazy. case scenario. Like yeah. there's, it, we could easily stay in the three to 5,000 range uh, for long, elongated time, but it doesn't yeah. seem like there's any, like there is, doesn't seem to be a pathway, especially without any sort of hard lockdown uh, to get back underneath that at least around 1,000, probably closer to 2,000 now with the large increase of continual uh, new infections. Right. And I also, um, the other thing that's like really concerning, as you mentioned with the mutations, is whether or not the vaccines will work with the mutations. And obviously, like in the U.S., the vaccine situation is also a mess. So like I hardly even bring them up when I'm just thinking about solutions. But um, and because I should say as well, because they take a long time uh, to create the antibodies in your body. So like you get a vaccine, you have to wait a month and then you get another shot, another dose um, then you have to wait another month for your body to be like closer to that 90% or more, um, you know, not resistance to the coronavirus because you can still get it, but it won't make you as sick. Uh, so there are lots of, I mean, there are lots of question marks. Um, there are some new vaccines coming out. I know Johnson and Johnson has one that's similar to the Russian vaccine in that it's like a vector style vaccine. So it's more like what we see as traditional vaccines where they take a dead they basically do a dead version of the virus um, to make the vaccine, and then your body builds antibodies based on that. Uh, but it's really, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and I guess the, I should add one more thing. Sorry, I'm like all over the place. But the other good thing about these kinds of shots, the latter mentioned shots, is that they're just one dose. So you get one dose, just like with a flu shot or many other shots that we get as children or whatever, and then you're good to go. Um, you just wait a little bit and then your body will respond accordingly. They're cheaper. They're not as effective, uh, but they would be easier to produce. They're easier to store. They're easier to transport because they don't require the super, super, super cold settings um, to, to stay you know, good, to not expire. So we could be looking at potentially some hope in the distance. Um, but considering the complete and utter distrust in the government that can, that remains understandably for some people and that's been there for forever for some people, um, I understand that there can be some hesitancy and some concern about whether or not they should get the vaccine, whether the vaccine should even work, and whether or not this process is going to be properly administered. Because we've already seen capitalists like coming in and screwing up the process, starting at the top, you know, um, trying to force reopen schools when people are not prepared, schools are not ready, schools don't have the proper protocols in place, proper equipment to, to filter the air and all of that. But then also teachers aren't vaccinated, don't have the high level masks that they need, the children don't have the high level masks that they need. I mean, it's just an endless snowball of bullshit <laughs> and I'm so tired of it I can't believe this is where we are it's I just I mean looking back on a year ago almost a year um you know I, I had the baby 
at the end of February and I've been on lockdown ever since. And like, when I say lockdown, I mean that. And it's just really bizarre. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm in some sort of hellscape that only I'm living in sometimes because I look around and I see people just chilling like things are normal and acting like things are normal and the government push on either side, Democrat and Republican pushing for things that are completely detrimental to communities knowing that we have a pandemic going on. I mean, it's all, it's very strange. It's like disorienting. I, I wonder like where our humanity went, you know? Yeah. And it's the U S is a uniquely poor performer globally speaking. And just quickly on the vaccine note, I just want to mention that it's important for people to remember that, like you said, the vaccine protects from like severe disease uh, effects and the the, the uh, effects of that rather than the preventing you from being able to contract and or spread the virus. And so like just because somebody's vaccinated doesn't mean they can't become they can't spread the virus, which is, I think, just an important detail that can be lost and all of that. But yeah. back to the point about the U- U.S.'s uniquely poor performance that virtually the only other countries that are really comparable in the the net effect would be Italy and the UK who also have comparable deaths per million of their population but and the US too. sorry to interrupt yeah. Brazil is also uh, really bad yeah and, and Brazil and Brazil was also probably a little less reliable as far as the reported numbers just as we know in the US what we've seen as far as being able to actually test people and then report those tests accurately. Like we know initially our testing result numbers of how many active cases were in the country was way lower than how many actual active cases there were. And so like, but the U S is just, it's really, really bad. (laughs) Really, really bad. Obviously we have the most number of total cases, which is more than almost, we're almost at three times as many as India now. And also three times as many as Brazil. And then, like, it's not just that the the spreading and the, the net effects of the virus on the population has been bad, but the economic in, uh, ramifications of how we've handled the coronavirus in the U.S. has been catastrophic as well. And I think people are getting a more... Uh, ha- are dealing with it in a different way now that it's not being placed at the feet of Trump, but... Now we're still waiting on Democrats to deliver the $2,000 checks that were supposed to come right after they won the Senate that are now looking to become... Yeah. Come on, Richard. It's four... Can't you do math? Can't you do math? (laughs) It's 600 plus 1,400. Come on, people. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously there was some sort of, like, reasonable confusion. Otherwise, they wouldn't have changed their messaging. (laughs) It's, like, the most awkward, awkward messaging, too. Like, the other day, Biden was like, you know, I'm going to give the American people what I promised. We've got to make sure they get this $1,400 check. And we're like, when did you promise us $1,400? I heard $2,000, unless I need to get my ears checked. I heard, saw... Heard, heard you say those words. I heard other people say those words. And I know I didn't imagine it. I know I've been in lo- on lockdown for a while, but I don't think I've completely lost my models. Right. And the most, like, my the, the thing that confuses me the most about the whole 1,400, 2,000 discussion that we saw kind of explode over the last couple of weeks is that, one, who is in opposition to 2,000? Is like as far as I understand, the only people that would oppose two thousand also oppose fourteen hundred. And then the other aspect is then is like, who 
is the like what is the the negative consequence of just making it 2000 even if you can technically make an argument that 1400 is all you promise and it seems that like the the opposition uh, larry summers recently i guess there's something floating around the white house from from him and republicans it was like we know republicans are going to oppose it no matter what and apparently the they also got amendments put on to biden's uh what's calling a stimulus a relief bill i think is more appropriate than stimulus is it, the phrasing i think is important just because when they say stimulus what they're saying is they don't care about your survival they just need you to spend money in the economy to keep the wheels turning that's the right. only reason they're delivering the checks and it's right. like people adopt that language subconsciously i think most of the time but like the people that are articulate that are generating that messaging are using stimulus rather than relief because the point isn't just to, to like provide relief to the crushing burdens and debts that people are facing under these circumstances, but just to get them to go and spend a little bit more money into the economy so that the wheels can keep turning and they can keep pretending like the, the game hasn't stopped. Game stop. I heard that reference. I don't know if that was subtle on purpose or not, but uh, speaking of which, if you wanted to mention GameStop, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, that is another, I think, aspect of this. And yeah. really what I see, I, I'm starting to see like a summer of discontent or whatever brewing in that the there's a perfect storm on the horizon for a uh, confluence of factors. But GameStop is one way that we saw this manifesting where essentially... Uh, there's a lot of great breakdowns out there from a lot of people that have more experience in every aspect of this than myself. But uh, to give it just a kind of general overview is that uh, some Wall Street people decided to bet on GameStop going under because of both the pandemic and being a brick and mortar and uh, a few other things. But they shorted it so hard that they went, they ignored the fundamentals, the information, the their own ability to assess the information about the fundamentals of the business and shorted themselves beyond what was even available to, to be able to make up on their bet. And some people, uh, one particular person noticed it and communicated that message to wall street redditors. And they basically caught them this hedge fund in particular Melbourne capital in a bad position and, and leveraged it. And it turned into kind of like a like a Robin Hood, you know, like a David and Goliath kind of story. But there's kind of a lot more going on behind the scenes. And as I think we most of us are familiar and would guess that the wealthy people always win in this game. And so while there, Melvin Capital did suffer some consequences and have to get bailed out to a degree. And I don't know exactly how the financials that are going to actually pan out to whether any individual people will actually have any consequences for that terribly bad bet or if all of those people will just kind of diffuse into other organizations and there won't really be any consequences how that actually pans out we're yet to see but the main thing i wanted to the reason why i re- reference this is just it was seen as an avenue or a pathway or a trajectory or a strategy for people to fight back against the 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 powers that be and I think it was also an awakening for some people that when that happens, that they can, the powers that be can turn the screws and flip the levers and shut people out. And so I think it was a a consciousness raising moment for a lot of people, but I'm not sure that it's going to be captured in by the left and by the communist socialist left as it should be, but more by uh, like this kind of libertarian. uh, And I hesitate to use 
anarcho or anything like that, but it's essentially this kind of capitalist libertarian uh, uh, corporatocracy, which as has just recently been further pushed along by the democratic governor in Nevada who proposed essentially giving companies like Facebook or Amazon their own cities to run in Nevada and their own governments and ability to collect taxes. Right. It's like, sorry to bother you is really just a, a documentary and not <laughs> a parody of our current conditions, you know? Yeah. The kind of dystopian futures that have been painted by a variety of uh, media are seemingly being used as a roadmap rather than a warning by mm-hmm. a lot of uh, folks. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think too, like what you were mentioning earlier about the GameStop situation, it reminds me of the very popular, um, you know, Audre Lord quote about not being able to dismantle the master's tool or the master's house with the master's tools. And I think that that, that issue or that problem can like extend much further than just, or much farther than just the GameStop situation um, into our other discussions and thoughts about, you know, foreign policy, racial, racial relation, or like, sorry, why can't I speak right now? Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, it's been a while. We haven't recorded a podcast in a minute, so I'm a little rusty. Um, but race relations and this question of, you know, fixing racism, if you will, there's so many Band-Aid approaches and things that make us rely on the system again in some way. Um, and when I say rely on the system, I'm not, I'm not talking about that in the sort of like proverbial Republican austerity um, welfare queen type language. I mean, rely on the system in the sense that we are relying on the system to fix our problems. We're, we're using, trying to use the system to fix our problems. And whether or not we realize it, that's not going to work. You know, like we, unfortunately, we have to undo the system. We have to dismantle the system in some way. We have to destroy it, start with something new and different. And unfortunately, right now, what we have is just a lot of people doing their best, trying to fix something that can't really be fixed. Um, So we've talked about this before, but you know, like all the appointments in the Biden administration of women of color, you know, men of color, whatever, um, black women, black men, et cetera. It's not going to make that system better just to have a person of color at the front or the head of it. Um, Because at the end of the day, they're limited. And sorry, my child is um, playing in the background and crying and making noise. So I apologize everyone. You know, I mean, the the problem is that we're trying to remedy issues within a system that just like recycles the issues. You know, it's it's a hamster in a cage situation. You can run and run and run, but ultimately you're still in the little wheel. You know, you're in a in a wheel and inside of a cage, and there are limitations on what you can actually do, regardless of what your own credentials are, regardless of what your identity is, whatever. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to really be able to make any headway within that system. And so I think that we, a lot of people are getting hip to that, you know, like I think people understand that. Some people go overboard in their discussion thereof um, because they just assume there's no value at all in having um, people who are from underrepresented communities and the potential, um, you know, contributions that they can make in terms of scope and reach of these systems within the system. Um, But I think that overall, you know, we have to be, mindful of the fact that representation in this case is not necessarily going to 100% fix things. Um, quite, it'll, it'll always fall short because it's within a system that's harmful and hurtful. And I think that, that that's the sort of lineup parallel to 
the GameStop situation um, on a much larger scale, because obviously in the specific microcosm of GameStop shorting and stocks and all of that, um, some people made out like bandits and they did really well and they got some money and they were able to like pay back some of their student loans and things like that. But the fact that they're still paying back, like they're, they're paying, they're using this money they won to pay for things that they shouldn't have to. You know, and I think that's where you see like a real like, oh, it's just a reinscription of reinscribing of the powers of the system and not necessarily um, a win for the majority. You know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. And that that Audre Lorde quote actually came to my mind, too, right when this was all happening. I was like, I wanted to be caught up in the excitement of it all. And like, hey, you know, we're going to this is finally striking back at the the little guy's finally getting, you know, to strike back at the big guy here and, you know, something's happening, so on and so forth. And then, I mean, within the theoretical limitations of the actual market mechanisms at play, there was a potential for if the people that held, that bought the GameStop, GameStop stock simply held and everybody that had it continued to hold until, and just kept uh, ratcheting the price up, it, it, there was no limit to where the stock could have potentially theoretically reached until eventually people broke down. And so what we saw most likely we're going to find out in the, from my understanding in the, the wash of things when we are able to actually look at it is that there were also some large hedge funds that were uh, basically playing the same side as uh, the GameStop or the uh, Wall Street broker bets group from Reddit. And once those larger players started to liquidate and also with the, the hesitations of the ability of date regular folks to be able to trade on Robinhood and apps like that caused the cascading down of stocks and allowed essentially the most over leveraged people to wind down their leveraging and so on and so forth. The main point of this just is that, as you mentioned that there was always mechanisms built into the system to recapture anything that they lost as a bad, as a result of this kind of backlash from the the regular folks, the plebs of of the country, and so on and so forth. And I, I think it's true that some people uh, recognize that. And I think part of what concerns me the most about these this moment that we're experiencing this, both from everything from COVID to the government response to uh, GameStop to uh, Joe Biden winning and how he's governing all these types of things, gives us the opportunity to look at how our future is uh, the trajectory of our future. And the, the trajectory and the thought that concerns me is that I see a lot of people that are very uh, still wrapped up in the idea of the meritocracy. And like they recognize that there's something wrong with the existing meritocracy, but the solutions that they're looking for are to resolve the meritocracy and it's largely self-centered in the sense that like the the meritocracy has gotten my value wrong or the, the value of people that i personally care about wrong and we need to fix the meritocracy so that it recognizes the value of these people that i care about or myself uh, better and that that's kind of the central focus and so it's not it's not constructed outside of the existing detriments of the system as it exists and like it it's done in absence of the recognition that capitalism is has a built-in necessity for 
people to be extremely oppressed. Like you, the, they're the compassionate capitalism that people are trying to envision, I believe. And from my understanding of what I've read and from experience and just from observation is that it doesn't, it, it's not, a, it's not a feasible idea based on the characteristics of capitalism itself. And it's like, you're trying to upend and undermine the fundamentals of the system by providing a compassionate existence for those on the bottom of capitalism. Capitalism demands and necessitates the exploitation of those at the bottom. Otherwise you don't get billionaires at the top. And so like the idea that you can rein that in, I think the last couple hundred years has, has been, a, has been an experiment in what it looks like to try and rein in capital capital under a capitalist system. And it, it's been wholly a failure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the understatement of the year, right? Um, and we're only at the beginning of the year, but I think it's accurate for the rest of it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I want to have some optimism and I know that there's always, there's always a discussion about having, you know, revolutionary optimism. And whenever we have these discussions, I feel like I'm always the one who's like the Debbie Downer. Um, but I really am, I am trying to be, um, more optimistic about things just for my own sanity. Right. Like I, I, I feel like, I mean, I'm not someone who has any sort of registered, um, mental issues or, you know, like things like that. But I, I recognize my own moments of weakness and especially with everything going on right now. Like, I feel like I have these moments where I'm just really vulnerable emotionally. And part of, trying to recover from that sense and not be just down in the dumps all the time during coronavirus lockdown is to like, and sorry, that's a throwback. I should say COVID-19 coronavirus is like outdated now considering there are multiple coronaviruses. But anyway, um, I think part of not being so frustrated and down about things is to try to have some of that optimism and to try to see a light at the end of this really, 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 really long tunnel. Um, And I think part of that is found in the, individual acts that people are doing. And I've mentioned this before, you know, I know that this is a a lefty podcast and we're both of us are like communists pretty much. I don't know how you identify these days, Richard, but um, speaking solely for myself. And I feel like there's a, a real, um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's sometimes a reluctance on my end to talk so much about the individual stuff because that's not very, you know, left leaning and the point of, the left is to have some sort of sense of the the commune and the the commons and the things that we share and we come together and do and that's where we have find power um but i also feel like there are i think the moments of hope come into effect when you see individuals working on something and then those individuals coming together as um in a way to sort of like resurrect the sense of community so it's it's a both and situation um and i think in in response to the lack of response from the government and the failures on behalf of the government the failures on on the side of corporations and things like that and the abuses that they commit we've seen people respond in really resilient ways and so i'm i'm hopeful in that sense um but you know that's the only thing i think right now that's kind of keeping me from just being really, 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 really depressed about where things can go. Um, I also, I think, am hopeful in terms of some of the scientific advancements we've seen happen in such a quick uh, way, but I also worry about 
where that will take us. And I know, I, you know, I mentioned on Twitter that something you said in an older podcast at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, I believe it was you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you saying that this situation is a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen with climate change. And around that time, there had been a lot of articles that had come out about like private militaries and people getting like, you know, bulletproof cars and helicopters and like investing in all this space exploration stuff because they recognize that like we're destroying the earth at such a rapid rate that people are going to get angry enough to be physically, you know, potentially physically violent towards the wealthy. And so the wealthy have to, you know, bulk up on their on their security apparatus or their personal security apparatus. And I think that like you you called it, um, we've seen so many things happen in such a short period of time that really show us what the wealthy are capable of, but also what these systems are capable of in terms of like really cracking down on any potential change, um, whether it be from individuals or a group. And uh, you know, it's hard to look at that and and not feel down but I am, I do have some hope in, in terms of what smaller groups of people are doing, individuals are doing, and where they're recognizing um, loopholes and things that can fall through the cracks and they're, and they're trying to fill it with something to keep people from, from going, um, from losing everything. You know, I, I really, I, it still just is astounding to me that there's not been enough aid, there's not been enough assistance, and there hasn't been any change really in so many things. Um, I just, I bring this all up because again, you know, going back to like how, how effective can change be within a system that, that doesn't seem to be moving. You know what I mean? Like if, if it's change with this, within the system, is it change at all? Um, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry for rambling there, but it's just a lot of thoughts are coming at once. And we just really quickly, I'm sorry. I don't want to upend your thought, but I do want to talk a bit about the J6 stuff because that was another thing that happened in January that we didn't get a chance to talk about and yet has really weighed heavily on on me and I would like to discuss at some point later on, uh, but go ahead. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think part of it is, uh, I think we, the left generally speaking, and I, I do identify as communist primarily like uh when i'm speaking to people that wouldn't identify as communists i might be socialist just to kind of break a bit of like to make it a little bit easier to communicate but i identify <laughs> as, as softer pill to take i guess right yeah <laughs> oh so you did it this is like okay I, if we're gonna even try have a conversation let's let's not start there but anyway uh, i feel like we need a bit of and this has been you know being in lockdown and conditions of watching a bit more television or whatever and uh bar rescue was on has been being put out recently and i don't know if you're familiar with what that is but uh it's a reality type shibi show where basically this guy would go into a uh, like a struggling bar and Basically, what what ended up happening was the owner was having some sort of issue and it was resulting in the bar being in a dilapidated conditions and the upset staff and so on and so forth. And basically, all he'd do is go in there and just be like, "You're here to do this. Like, you sell drinks and food, and you you like you're in this space, and all you have to do in order to like be to be successful at this is just do the things that you know you're supposed to do." 
and just ba- very basic, you know, it's like pour drinks, make the food as it's supposed to be prepared and just have everything function. And it was, it was very like rudimentary. And it's not as if he was coming in and providing these kind of like, you know, mystical things that could only be solved by genius level consultation or anything like that. It was just, you're, you're a bar. Here's the things that this bar does. Let's do those better and this is how like and it's very just basic and i feel like the left is reaching out for that in, a, in sort of ways in this moment and that like mm-hmm. people are, want some sort of regimented kind of like people want to be able to just check into something and be like okay i'm in the how to be a communist course in six months i'm going to be a communist and in <laughs> two years we're going to have a classless state society let's go yeah like, that's what people are looking for and it's like well there's a bit more to it than that but at the same time there is a lot of aspects to that where you know it's like understanding uh, you know mutual aid organizations and organizing generally and uh the kind of individual efforts that you're talking about as well like that's a very important part of it. And that's, that's part of the kind of this, this rescue project, as I would call it uh, in this moment, is that like, I see those and those are like, it is a, it is a bright moment when you see is like, Oh, you know, it's like the reasons why we're not having the successes we, we would like is not necessarily that, you know, we, we have something fundamentally wrong in our perspective, but, there are these factors in the way and we have to address these factors. And as I feel as though the kind of political process is an important part of that. And one of the most disheartening and kind of uh, upsetting things is watching people that, you know, get into this process, into the system in order to either, you know, change it from within or whatever, but most importantly to really provide services, goods, meet the material needs of the people that they're there to help. And watching the system slowly rip and tear every bit of their ability to do that away from them. And the, the more power they gain within that system, the less able they actually are to meet the, those needs for the people that need it the most. And it's just, it's like, it's devastating to watch. And it's like, and so like, uh, the bar rescue kind of aspect of it is me kind of, I guess, reaching out for some sort of other Avenue for these very talented and very motivated and energetic and crucial people to this movement to not be just browbeaten in the system and, and watch the, the, their will and ability to serve the constituents or the, the people that are, that have supported to get them into that position and just watch their ability to serve them just dwindle away and watch what that does to them as an individual. when they, when they are grappling with, you know, what they came to do versus what they are actually able to do. Right. And I think on the one hand, like I agree with you and I think I know what you're kind of getting at. Um, you can be more explicit if you need to, obviously later on, but um I think the other side of it too, though, is that we as constituents of those kinds of people, I don't think it's our job to be like, to give our, our representatives like a pep talk or something, right? Um, so like that, we're not their counselors or whatever, but I also don't feel that there needs to be like, I, I think some, some of the attacks that I have seen personally, at least in the online left spaces has been aimless. Um, they're not, um, how do I put this? They're not strategic necessarily. Um, and sometimes what I see is just like an onslaught of negativity for negativity's sake or contrarianism for contrarianism's sake. And, and sometimes what you, what some people get into is a kind of negativity that is 
just to say something, you know, and then they're trying to one up one another. Um, so I see this one popular YouTuber being negative about this elected official, and then I'm going to take it and be negative too. And then I'm, and it's not so much that, that, that that process is pushing for anything anymore. It's just to be, to be contrarian, to say that you have an enemy, to construct an enemy in some cases out of people that aren't actually your enemy. Um, and I think that, you know, I, on the one hand, I don't like when elected officials reply to demands with things like be patient, right? Because we're well beyond that point. There's no more being patient when a jillion people have lost their jobs, so many people have died, and not just from coronavirus, but just like everyday illnesses that shouldn't be um, because they haven't been able to get healthcare and they haven't been able to get treatment. Um, they don't have a job. They don't have the income saved. They don't, you know, there's so many, so many things that people have lots of reasons to be angry about. We're being killed in the streets by police and military. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's no end to the suffering that people have a, an absolute right to be angry about. Um, so that's, I should get that out of the way first. But I also think that we, you know, as voters, as people, many of whom are comfortable in some way, I'm not comfortable, but I'm saying like some of these people who are making the, the loudest noise online who are comfortable, I think there's also a role there that has to be played. Um, and that there has to be, I don't want to say tact because that's not what I'm looking for either, but I just, I think that there should be some strategy. There should be an aim. There should be um, some sort of, some semblance of, um, yeah, some semblance of strategy. And I think, to be honest, I'm being really, really frank right now, I think some people are doing the things that they do in order to fill their, to line their pockets. I don't think they're actually interested in um, helping people. I don't think they're actually interested in, in even, you know, doing anything to help change the system. I just think that they're in it for clicks and they're in it for Patreon dollars and they're in it to grow their podcast. And that's fine. So be it, but don't drag the rest of us down in that process. At the same time, I'm frustrated by the people on the other side of these kinds of debates that are like, you know, we have organizers and we just have to wait on the organizers to do what they're going to do. And we elect officials and we have to just wait on the officials to do what they're going to do. Like there has to be some sort of happy medium where we actually take the anger that's real and palpable and channel that into strategy and cha channel it into getting more or less, I don't want to say immediate action, but action in a much faster pace than what we're seeing. And also the other, and then I'm going to shut up. I think the other part of this that we have to recognize is that um, sometimes we don't have enough people on the inside. Perhaps we need more of them on the inside. Like I would, I would be thrilled if we had a Senate or a house or both that was filled with more people like the squad that would not make me 100% happy, but it would be at least some moves toward, okay, maybe those people will vote in favor of some things we need. We're never, I think the problem is like, we start, again, going back to this question of the system, people start with the assumption that putting people in office means you're going to get what you want. And it doesn't. 
And it doesn't mean that because there's something fatally flawed with those people. It's because there's something, something fatally flawed with the system. So regardless of how cool the people are or how lefty the people are that you put in, in power, whether it's a third party or not, you're going to end up with the same kind of bullshit because it is a system that we're fighting against. It's not these individuals or even parties, to be frank. So I think on the one hand, a lot of these efforts that start online and that kind of trickle out into the, the larger population, things like force the vote, I'm just going to say it. I think they're fine, but they start off, they are already technically, you know, like um, not that radical, right? What they're doing in that sort of method, relying on elected officials to get something done is not radical. It's, it's assuming that people can operate within a system that's against us and that the, it's going to potentially work out. And I think that that's the, having that as your starting place is already a compromise. And that's where we start to see problems. And I think people get frustrated by that. Um, but we have to, that's, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that it's never going to be everything we need and it's never going to be everything we want because it's operating within a system that is not everything we need or want. Yeah. I'm reminded of, you know, it's like, feel like people need some theory, you know, you, you get, right. that, get that underpinning then the, the criticism and the understanding and the recognition of what's transpiring is based in a critical analysis rather than kind of an emotional, uh, like backlash or, uh, yeah, of just kind of reacting to what, how you're feeling about the moment and rather than really analyzing well what's an effective way to kind of get the desired results that we're after here and i think part of that also is uh, expecting the wrong things from our elected officials and like you said it's like electing somebody doesn't mean you're going to get what you want and i think one of the things that theory would as as pushed onto me anyway or that i've gotten out of it is that something like getting an elected official the point of you know being able to have those things is to bring to use those to raise class consciousness through presenting like solutions or ideas and watching how the system responds to them like and so like the this the the 2000 versus 1400 checks versus should they be means tested where should they be capped and all those that like the idea is like you're not really actually expecting is like you obviously you push for the things but it's like you don't actually expect to get adequate uh aid from the government as a result of the elected officials by Democrats winning the Senate. The idea isn't that, oh, now we're going to get sufficient, you know, monetary aid to make it through the pandemic. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to have the people that are ostensibly the ones that want to give it to you in power still. And that raises people's awareness of to the, to the contradictions within the system. And like that raising the, the consciousness of the, the masses in of those contradictions is part of the process. But what I was mentioning earlier and concern is that then people are like, well, we need to just get rid of all these big cat or, you know, these fat cats. And then once they're gone, then the, the meritocracy will work and I and my friends will all be rewarded and will be, you know, really successful million and billionaires and the system will be working. Right. And it's like, well, wait, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> like, that's going to still require the exploitation and oppression of countless people, if not domestically, then in the global South, which is where, you know, Europe is often touted as kind of an example, but it's often forgotten or left out or not kind of in the forefront of people's minds that there are also, uh, you know, a lot of colonial uh, relationships going on there that result in tons of exploitation of countless peoples around the world that are necessary to maintain the, 
the socialization levels that they have and the kind of safety nets that they have. They don't do those independently based off their own, their own national resources and national production. It's a result of extraction from the global South. Yeah, it's always that, um, unfortunately. And we've, we've talked about this as it relates to the Green New Deal, but certainly other, other concepts as well. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I just wanted to go back a little bit and mention in passing somewhat, uh, and briefly, I should say, the, J, the January 6th, um, whatever you want to call it. I call it an attempted coup because obviously I think this gets sort of lost in the shuffle, but I don't believe that based on my understanding of history, uh, which I study, coups are not always hyper-organized. Coups are not always led by the military. Um, we have seen coups that are haphazard and that are sort of, you know, pulled together at the last minute that function insofar as they take down the current government or uh, preemptively harm and attack the government that's incoming. So by that definition, what happened uh, was an attempted coup on January 6th. Um, many of the people involved were military, former police, active police, active military, um, um, retired police, retired military, much as you see in militias throughout the country, white supremacist militias in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, so I'm, I, I took seriously what happened and not because I'm, I, lo I love the United States and I love the Capitol and I'm like so hyped about, you know, our elected officials, but simply because these are people who, who have posed a threat and actually physically harmed, uh, violently so, right, everyday people too. They're not just harming elected officials. I think what gets lost when some people analyze this solely from this like really weird um, blase, like, oh, you know, it's not that serious. They were silly and they were wearing, you know, they were cosplaying and blah, blah, blah. And No, I mean, these people are also the same people who like shoot and kill uh, everyday people in white supremacist attacks in this country. They are organized, and that's what's scary. They've been doing this for years, not just when Trump got in office. I mean, they've been organizing for decades. I remember when I was little, in the 80s and early 90s, we would hear about militia groups um, planning attacks and, and actually carrying them out um, on government buildings, on homes, on individuals. So I take seriously what I saw, um, and it's frustrating to me that these people have been reduced to some sort of country yokels that aren't serious and that it's not a big deal and whatever they're just silly and like trump and that's not the case we saw many people who were as i said already active or previously employed by military and police but also people who are business owners people that we have to interact on a daily basis that we rely on for services and i'm sorry but like you know i don't want a doctor or dentist or someone like that treating me or my child or someone in my family knowing that they're going to harm me based on their racial bias or whatever um so i'm i'm not I, I take it seriously and i think that people have been discounting this sort of violent rhetoric and action for far too long and precisely because they don't have to deal with the blowback from it they're not at risk or they they perceive that they're not at risk for now um because i've heard some people of color say these things too that this is not that big of a deal um and i do i do think it's a big deal um i i am also concerned by what i've seen as a sort of very strange um collective outpouring from some circles of negativity towards uh aoc's discussion of what she felt at at that moment and fear that she had um but it's coming from a weird place in the sense that it's not so much a it's not like critical of her policy, but it's like critical of things like her tone of voice or her body language or whatever. And I'm just like, we've spent 
literal years talking about how empty the mainstream press is for saying such things about people in office, um, namely Bernie Sanders. I know that there's there's been a lot of stuff around like, you know, Bernie Sanders mannerisms or Bernie Sanders' tone of voice or whatever um, being sexist. And I think in, re in what we're seeing with response to AOC is an actual sexist response um, insofar as people are analyzing these things that have nothing to do with her, what I would say is, you know, sort of casual testimony of what happened. Um, they're not talking about that. They're talking about these other, the sort of question of affect. And I don't think that that is is like healthy or normal like I, I don't know I mean like it's really weird and it's also let's just be honest it's not revolutionary like what does this have to who cares if we don't like her tone of voice what does this have to do with anything that we should be focused on right like if we're if we're worried about the American people if we're worried about people abroad if we're worried about the effect that this virus and the U.S.'s continual um you know out like rapacious behavior in in the rest of the world and here towards oppressed people. If we're worried about that, why the fuck are you guys talking about whether or not you liked AOC's tone of voice when she was talking about something that was a very real threat to her life and many of our lives? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not joking when I say these people will murder and kill us. And they have. Like, I live in Baltimore. There's a dude who literally went from Baltimore County. He rode a bus to New York to kill a Black homeless man. You know, you guys remember that? Maybe, maybe, I don't know if you remember it or not. There was a guy who wore, he wore like a white outfit when they caught him. And he literally, he, he was like a fucking KKK member, you know, like a neo-Nazi or some shit. These people are here. They are active. They live in our communities. They, they are supposed to be, you know, they, they give us, they provide services to us every day. And so, yeah, I have a right to be upset. She was talking about a police officer and did we not just spend the whole summer talking about police violence and see like a massive outgrowth of these sorts of protests because of violent act after violent act by police? Like all of a sudden are our communists in love with the police now? Like what is, I feel like I'm in like upside down world. Like I don't know what's happening and it's frustrating for me to see. And at first I, I didn't want to say anything about it, but what I'm seeing over and over is like a really aggressive, like overly aggressive response to what I think many of us would have felt if we were in that situation and that many of us have felt in interactions with police and in interactions with white, white supremacists, you know, whether or not we know that they are, you know, like, I just, I don't know. It, it was very strange to me to see as sort of a, on the sidelines to that. And I just, that's all I wanted to mention about it. But I, anyone who's interested with, I don't know, my personal thoughts about the January 6th situation can just go look at my Twitter timeline. But it was it was very strange. I've, it's very strange for me to see purported leftists like acting out like this about the AOC stuff, and then I think actively going along with what is a Republican project to make everyone forget about what they did and about what their their stands did, and to focus instead on whether or not what AOC said is the truth, and if her tone of voice is right or not. Yeah, the backlash that AOC received has been bizarre to me, but I, I think it, understandable in the context that you provide there with, with just the kind of misogyny and sexism. That's I deeply would deeply in this country, and, and the left doesn't by uh, adopting a generally uh, leftist perspective automatically disabuse themselves of that kind of indoctrination and that understanding and that that kind of reactionary 
uh, tendencies. And I think it's easier to just not examine those and blame everything else besides, you know, a lack of self-examination and improvement for dealing with that. And so I think that's where a lot of people turn to. And I think Twitch is another, it's uh, Twitch is similar to Twitter in that it promotes a certain type of communication between people that isn't really conducive to, to like actual development and growth and understanding. Uh, but uh, tends to, lend itself towards kind of bombastic and like uh you know uh, proclaim uh, like proclamations of rightness and so on and so forth and so like it doesn't doesn't net out on the social like when you're uh, when you're actually interacting with other human beings it's not how you would at normal it's not how people would interact with each other in person but between you know just the general onlineification of everything but then on top of that the people just not being around other people as a result of COVID. I think that's exacerbated the people's tendencies to speak bombastically in ways towards and at and directed towards people that they would never, if the person was standing in front of them, they would never just talk to them like that. And they would recognize immediately if they saw somebody talking to somebody, that that person like that, that whatever their intentions were, communication wasn't happening, which is like, key is like if, if the point is just to rant and to say something so that you can get it off your chest and have other people slap you on the back and say yeah you know like that's one thing is like but if if your intention is to actually uh have any sort of resolution that improves the position of uh, your goals or or the, improves the position of your goals then it has to be uh, rooted in a, a constructive type of criticism and understanding that uh, i think is completely is almost totally absent from a lot of the criticism that you were highlighting there. I think you're right about that. There's definitely a manifestation of of sexism, misogyny, and and arguably racism as well. Because I didn't see the same sorts of responses to um, to Katie Porter, for example. I understand that Katie Porter wasn't like I was a sexual assault victim and almost crying in sort in her discussion of it. But still, it doesn't matter. Like I think that there's there's a reduction of the way AOC felt precisely because of of the reasons that I already laid out. Um, but I also think that, you know, I think you're right about the mediums through which we have these discussions being kind of off, right? Like they're not the best spaces to have a discussion like this, but you know, they are becoming our predominant modes of discussion, especially for younger people. And so we have to think about what that's going to mean in the future when we do have these sorts of discussions, not just with popular people that we like or popular people in office or whatever, we're of a generation that like experienced this kind of transition, you know, it's like we're old enough that when we were young, young, like you would still have to like go knock on your neighbor's door or like that was usually the most effective way to like open up a channel of communication. And uh, like then it kind of, Oh, you know, then as you get older, you were able to use the phone and like, it was more of a practical thing to use like a landline phone. <laughs> and then it's like, then cell phones started to become a thing, like more accessible for, you know, the teenage group, older teenagers generally, you know, depending on your affluence or whatever. And it's like, and then eventually, you know, you get to adult, like and the internet and it's like AOL was coming up as, as we were going. So like we kind of witnessed this transition and it was like, well, my, amount of experience and human interaction prior to this kind of transition is limited. I, I'm cognizant of it, you know, it's like, I recognize that there's a difference in kind of how we interacted, 
regularly as people, you know, 20, 30, like 20 plus years ago versus how we're doing it now. And it's like, whether that, like, whether those are things that are just happening regardless of anything that we can do to materially really affect those. And it's like, it's something that we have to adjust to or whether it's something we can consciously, you know, change is uh, of varying, I think is worth discussing in, at another time or whatever. But I think that, that, that there is this kind of changing of communication and of how we interact with each other. And that has social ramifications that meet out in our lives is something that is important to consider. And you mentioned kids is like, I know like a lot of people like are develop their discussions on Twitch and it's like, and TikTok's another one. And it's like, I've seen this kind of manifest now where, you know, you'll be out in public and a popular meme or song from TikTok will come on and you can tell people that are on TikTok, people that aren't. And it's like this moment and like, there's ways of communicating like points by just singing a couple notes of a popular TikTok trend that then if you're not part of that uh, community, that then it's lost on you. And so like, I can understand how that change and that evolution has to be something that we have to integrate into our analysis of how to communicate moving forward. So it's not something we can just disregard or ignore or be curmudgeons about, or, you know, uh, just resist on the, on the sense of, Oh, I don't like that how it is, but it has to be an integration of understanding of how to uh, elevate and integrate that type of discussion into raising class consciousness rather than destroying it. Right. Definitely. There has to be an incorporation of it instead of thinking about like how to one up one another. Right. Um, If we're going to, if these are going to be our primary modes of communication, then we need to use them effectively and not just for like self aggrandizement or self-fulfillment economically. Right. Because as I said earlier, I think some people are just in things for clicks um, and getting people riled up and not necessarily like towards any sort of major goal or collective mission. Um, I, I would also just add to that, that like the other thing that I find so frustrating about all of this is that it is, to me, it feels like a laundering of right wing talking points. And I think there's a lot of ground being lost in terms of what could be done instead with this sort of discussion. So like when I, when I saw her, um, AOC's discussion of what had happened and like her kind of testimony, as I keep calling it. I feel like what what could have been done there is like using those sorts of statements to ask her, why then are you okay with what we would argue are comparable, if not worse, um, situations and, and staged coups and sort of U.S. intervention and interference in the government's everyday, everyday governmental activities of other countries and their sovereignty, why in this if like if you're having this moment which is like scary and you know you're you're feeling some kind of way about it understandably i need you to then step into the shoes of other women in these other countries where we're targeting their government that has been democratically elected and overthrowing them and resulting in these catastrophic like catastrophic effects right um and what it means for women and girls in these other places to be vulnerable in these situations because of what we're doing to them and their governments. I think the other question that could be raised is a larger question about policing. Um, And as I've said, you know, like if they're not willing to protect government officials or if she, if she as a government official is afraid 
of the police that are supposed to be there to protect her. What does that tell us about policing in America, right? And what, and, and I mean, specifically, what does it tell us about policing in America for people of color, for black people, for Latinos, for, for anyone who's like non-white, right? Who's not considered white by the policeman in question. How does that then affect how they're treated? Um, and what can we do with that sort of information, right? And, and I'm thinking in, in terms of like, to me, that sort of situation would activate or should activate someone who's in that position. So like AOC now should come out very forcefully against policing, right? Or against coups or against, you know, foreign interference in general by the United States. She should not be voting for military authorization in other countries. She should not be voting for, you know, economic sanctions and things like that. So I think these are moments where instead of antagonizing her, use them as points to hold her accountable, right? Um, and when I say hold her accountable, I know that's sort of an empty phrase nowadays because it's very hard to do, but she's active on Twitter. You know, she follows a lot of people. She's active on Twitter. She, she listens to people's podcasts. She knows what she goes on to people's podcasts, right? So I think that there's a, a way to engage these sort of newer and more progressive Congress people through social media and through taking their words and mobilizing around them and holding them accountable in the sense that you need to bring them up every time you're talking about these aforementioned issues and remind her of how scared she said she was, how frustrated she was, how, how horrified she's been in the response and have her think about what it looks like then for us to do that to other governments um, and other people's countries. And I think that there's a way, that's, that's a constructive way to kind of harness, I think what some people felt, um, I don't know if it was like, I don't know. I mean, we said already the sort of misogyny and racism, but I, it's there's something else going on that I can't quite put my finger on in terms of what to call it um, that makes me incredi- incredibly uncomfortable and I feel like is a waste of time, whereas this would be potentially a more constructive way to engage her words and her expression of of fear and frustration. Yeah, no, I think that you're, the point about, like, police and the system itself not being able to keep at least certain Congress people uh, feeling safe. It's like, obviously like the QAnon congressperson had a different feeling about the storming of the Capitol than AOC felt. And it's like, so how safe people felt in that, in those moments had had a lot to do with uh, other things besides just, you know, their uh, proximity to what was it was transpiring. And so I think AOC for me, the thing is like, you mentioned accountability and, and we talked earlier about the GameStop thing is she did a Twitch stream around the GameStop thing and she had a founder of Reddit and a trader on who were essentially espousing the kind of very subtly like cloth or very subtly covered libertarian perspective, you know? And the ironic part though was uh, a couple times during the stream, they of all people were the ones that were like, and by the way, basically, this is your job. We're expecting you to do something about this. Like, this is what you do. This is your job. This, like, they they made that point, and it was it was polite, and it wasn't like like aggressive or anything. But it was just kind of, oh, and by the way, you know, we're expecting you to do something about this. But then 
if you listen very closely, you could tell that it wasn't that they wanted regulation. It was that they wanted freedom for the, the little guy to act uh, in the, mm-hmm. as the same as the corporations, which mm-hmm. like any basic rudimentary understanding of the system recognizes that the little guy always loses. <laughs> and the, on the off chance that they manage to eke out a victory, it's at the, with the, with the consent of the ruling powers. It's like it, the idea that by taking away the rules, you're going to free up the little guy to climb up the ladder and be the new big, the new, you know, leaders of uh, our economy because they did it off merit is just to me absolutely ridiculous, but it is very captivating to people that are still uh, captured by the indoctrination of capitalism and the meritocracy where they're like, Oh, you know, all we got to do is get all these corrupt uh, bureaucrats out of the way. And then, you know, will unleash the the real true uh, potential of you know capitalism of the markets of individuals and so on and so forth. This is their thinking, and it's it like I when I'm listening to it, I can I can immediately tell if I didn't have a strong communist or like a if I hadn't been building my communist uh, understanding that this would be appealing to me superficially at least, and that is terrifying to me. <laughs> And Don't then to have AOC fucking promoting it was just like that. If you want, if if I wanted somebody to rant against AOC, I wanted them to rant about that, not right. about the tone of her voice when she was describing, you know, various traumatic experiences that she went through. That is totally like what, what, like why? That's not left. That's is like, am I, did I fall into Republican Twitter or like what, yeah. what happened? It's like that's what it is. Is this libertarian crossover where libertarians are sneaking in and saying things that sound similar to what the communists are saying. But then if you peel back a couple layers, you find that, oh, actually it's in defense of capitalism or it's in the interest of white supremacy, or it's, a, it's like, even though they're using the same rhetoric, it's, it's very similar to how liberals have co-opted uh, rhetoric of revolutionary movements in order to, to water them down and to bring them back in. Republicans and this libertarian movement that I'm seeing is capturing uh, the politically naive and giving them uh, a way to recapture them into capitalism. That's absolutely what's happening. And it's sort of a Fox Newsification of the left, which has at least the online left, which has been going on for a very long time. And that you and I have certainly commented on before um, and to varying degrees. But I think that there's got to be some sort of, um, I don't know, recapturing of, reclaiming of uh, what leftism is. And it's, and I always, I know that there's some, some debate about the idea of leftism um, and that it, term in and of itself is not as um not as it's sort of like a a catch-all term and i'm i'm very clear that like when i say that i mean people to the left of the democratic party but i also recognize that that comes in a variety of forms so i don't want to say like just communists or just socialists i know i recognize that there are a whole host of people on the nominal left that uh consider themselves a whole host of things different categories and whatever so that's why i use it as a catch-all um without trying to exclude people in the process or, you know, undermine, not undermine, but like under-recognize the work that they're doing. Um, But I do think that there has to be, I don't know, I feel like there needs to be a radicalism that's actually radical, like going back to the root, starting from scratch again and recognizing principles and not like fighting based on like right-wing determinations of what culture is or what is an actual you know, like important thing to discuss. I mean, there's just all sorts of weird things. There are weird things that I see going on on the online left all the time that frustrate me. And that if anything, sometimes feel like they're intentional deterrence to having new people join and having people get involved. I mean, if I came out of the sky from 
I don't know, another planet. And I looked at the way things were, way people were talking about things. I would not be interested in joining a left organization right now. And then speaking as someone who's, who is on earth and like, you know, from here as a black woman in particular, as a black woman who is not rich, who's lower middle-class, poor, arguably, depending on the day, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable. These, these organizations and the way that they speak and the way people act online and stuff, I would feel completely alienated. And I do often. And I have to remind myself, like, for me, the roots are like the history that I know, right? That's where I find my root. And that's where I try to keep left PFC. You know, that's why, how, how it started really about history. And we're going to go into more history stuff soon. Um, you know, in the future, because it's just been a, a tough year. I think that we have to really go back to understanding why we're doing this. And why we're doing this should have nothing to do with Patreon dollars. Why we're doing this should have nothing to do with one-upping each other and who can be the meanest or who can be the most aggressive. None of it should have anything to do with, you know, getting famous. None of it should have anything to do with to be honest, bullying people who should be in our ranks, right? Like why are you anti-black or why are you anti-women or why are you anti-LGBTQ? Why are you anti-immigrant if you're on the left? Like these things have no place on the left. Why are you reaching out and trying to include people who are straight up white supremacists in our movements and then telling me that I need to swallow that and take that because this is what the left is? That's not left. Like stop it. You know what I mean? Like I just want to shake people sometimes. Like this is not, this is not what being on the left is and should be about. And I see a lot of distortions of history to try to make that shit happen. And it's not going to like, it's sort of like a, in Mean Girls where you're like, you don't make, you can't make fetch happen. Like stop trying to make fetch happen for anyone who knows Mean Girls, <laughs> um, that movie. But you know, like it, it's, it's, I feel like there, there keeps being this issue being raised of like, let's, let's have white supremacists in our ranks. We can change them. We can fix them. And like, you can do that on your own time. If you want to reach out to white supremacists and fix them before they come join us, cool. Stop trying to push it on us that we need to, that that should be our primary project. That is not our primary project. There are more of us than them. You know? Yeah. That's what your family reunions are for. (laughs) (laughs) Like stop, like do you have your own stuff to work out? Go do that. But don't, don't, don't try to force it on the rest of us. That's not for us. We need to be focusing on helping people who are vulnerable right now and always who are marginalized right now and always and who are being crushed by this system and people are losing their focus because they're trying to make money off of being on the left that's why we're seeing this happen you know i'm not crazy like i'm looking at the situation and i'm saying y'all are trying to make money and that's why you're inviting all of this nonsense because you want to keep up drama you don't care about what happens to us you know you want to get clicks you want to get money and it's very disappointing. And I, I wish that people would focus. And I think, as I said, you know, and one of the things that I, I really want to get back to doing for our podcast because of time and whatnot that I haven't been able to is really going back to the history, going back to the written word, going back to speeches, looking at those things and discussing them. Um, because, you know, I love these news recaps. I think they're helpful and clarifying for us to talk about things that are going on in the contemporary moment and try to connect them to history. But we also have to look at the history to understand where, why we are where we are right now. And so I, I really just, I wish people would get it together. And I think people, not just, I mean, I think people who are doing this know what they're doing. The problem is that the people that they're manipulating don't seem to see that they're being manipulated. And I'm increasingly concerned about that because it's like they're building an army of angry people with, 
no aim except to attack and be aggressive. And then they just turn that into attacking people who should be on our side, um, who should be working towards goals uh, like equality, like having some semblance of a life under this, for now, at least until we can overthrow this capitalist system that's crushing us, you know? I don't know. Yeah. My I mean, sense. for me, it's like, it boils down to like, I, I need my liberation. I need, I need freedom. And it was like, uh, I was able to read enough to recognize that my freedom is inextricably tied up with the freedom of other oppressed peoples. And it's like, so I can't get free until we're all free. And so like that is the driving motivation behind my actions. It's like, there's a selfish motivation and I'm seeking my own liberation but there's a, a conscious and cerebral understanding that my liberation, again, is tied up in the liberation of oppressed peoples everywhere. And so, like, it's just that simple for me. And so, like, when I I try to, you know, I'm, I'm human and I make mistakes and get caught up in emotions and like, like anybody else. It's like, I try to think about, well, how, is this lead, how does this lead to my liberation? You know, how does this, how does this lead to our liberation? And when like those kinds of things that you're describing is like, I, there's nothing there, you know, this, is, this doesn't, this is not heading in the right direction in, from any perspective. And so like, I, I can only identify it as not uh, like not conducive to the activities or the goals that I'm seeking. And so like, that's the only kind of identification that I can have with it, I guess. And so like, to try to find some sort of uh, like understanding of where that perspective comes from is like, you mentioned the monetary motivation. I think that's huge. I don't quite understand why, like if somebody imagines themselves on the left, why once a podcaster is making tens of thousands of dollars, they're like, you know what? They need five more of my dollars. Like that's really weird to me. And it's like, I get when things are locked behind you know, premium contents locked behind a wall and you just want to get that premium content and it's more of, you know, you're paying them specifically for a, a content kind of, it's like buying an episode off of, off of your cable company or whatever. I, I get that aspect of it, but then when that's not why you're contributing, it, it just, it, it, that is perplexing to me. And then, so I diving deeper in that and mesh, meshing it up with what you're talking about it. I find that there's, ample amounts of resources for people uh, that are going to reaffirm what is already kind of the, the mindset of this semi-affluent PMC, like just slightly underneath the liberal PMC class that is like having some sort of modicum of success under the system. So they don't want too radical of a change they're not comfortable with too radical of a change because they have some modicum of success, but they also have a, a level of guilt and discomfort with the suffering that they see. So they want to be seen and identify themselves as working to reduce that suffering, but not from a perspective, like the kind of perspective that I laid out before of recognizing that liberation is tied, is all tied together. And that if there's people being oppressed and, uh, uh, abroad that that's uh it prevents us from being liberated uh, domestically and so like th that disconnect i guess between the the kind of goals of liberation and the catharsis catharsisism of you know like just lashing out at people that are supposed to be doing more is like how people feel is uh where i feel we could do better 
generally in just the left media sphere to make those connections and help people understand this is like, but that's not as interesting or as, as clickbaity as, you know, just saying bombastic things and sparking conflict and then re- retorting with snarky remarks back and forth. Like that generates a lot of attention clicks and there's a great video about the anger germ that expresses how this is like a known phenomenon about when you're trying to generate more attention and generate more clicks at this outrage and anger and having two, you know, different sides of things and, and having two different camps amplifies all those types of effects and it uh, diminishes the ability to actually make progress. And there are always only two, of course, there can never be any sort of discussions in between or outside of, or even beyond what's being discussed in these two camps. It's very frustrating and um, limiting. Uh, And I hope that there can be some sort of ideological maturity that we start to see more of. Hopefully people are tired of this or getting tired of it and will reach for something better. Um, And I'm not, I'm not saying we're the answer to that necessarily. I'm just saying in general, right? Like reading the, the, the basics, listening, if you can't, have the you don't have the time to read listen to them on tape you know listen to reviews there's so many podcasts coming out every day that talk about these sorts of historical works and ideology and like writing on the left um so not just us like there's so many other new new podcasts that are doing it and i'm appreciative of that because i think we need more of that we need discussions of leftist text from different perspectives there's nothing wrong with that i welcome that you know i think that's important um, and we need to, as I said, I'm, and I'm not, I, again, I'm not saying I have all the answers by any means, but I do think that we need to get serious. And by that, I don't mean we can't be funny or whatever, right? Like, I'm just saying like, <laughs> we as a left, as a popular left in the United States need to get serious. And I think the reason we see so much nonsense is because we're in the center of the beast, you know, we're in the belly of the beast. We don't, we have worries for sure. That there's no doubt about that, but I think there's a kind of, um, I don't know, like lack of seriousness coming out of this because, as I said, there's a self-centeredness. And one of the things that you learn from revolutionary writing and praxis and things that you know from history is that there's no room for that. Like you can't have a revolution with a bunch of people who are selfish. You know, that's not going to work. If you have a bunch of self-interested people in leadership, your your attempt to change the world or your community or your political system or whatever is not going to work. Um, you're going to have a cult of personality perhaps, but you're not going to have a movement. And I think that we have to be really careful about differentiating between those two things and choosing the one that's actually going to lead us towards greater goals that get us to where we need to be in terms of our freedom, our rights, our self-respect, um, you know, all of it. So anyway, with that said, I will close this out. Um, like I sort of mentioned in passing, we are going to have more uh, episodes coming up. We're back. We're back in business right now. My month break is over. It wasn't really much of a break, but um, <laughs> it is over. That much is for sure. So if that happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I hope that uh, we'll be able to put out some more episodes soon. Um, have some things in the pipeline coming up and some more discussions of history and readings, writings, things like that, uh, that we'll be putting out soon. And of course, there will also be some more Comrade Mommy episodes. I'm going to do some interviews with parents on the left, um, talk to them about their experiences parenting on the left. Richard and I are going to continue to do our Reading Revolution series and um, 
potentially a Comrade Mommy Reading Revolution collaboration uh, session. So we'll let you guys know about that. Um, and I also want to do a bit more of the Left POC of the Week. I haven't had a chance to record any of those, uh, but I will be doing that as well um, whenever the baby is asleep and I have a moment of five minutes of free time to drop one. So thanks everyone for listening. Please take care of yourselves. And remember that you can find more about the podcast, including free readings and other um, episodes, interviews that we've done, et cetera, by going to our Patreon page where everything is always free, but we of course welcome any donations. Um, that's patreon.com slash left POC. You can also find us on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, by just searching for left POC and that's L-E-F-T POC. Richard, did you have any final thoughts? Uh, just uh, like I don't consider myself uh, an expert by any means on any of this stuff. It's, I'm just uh, learning and experiencing this stuff along with everybody else. And uh, my understanding of uh, what I've read is that dialogue and this is, this is an important aspect of better understanding the world around us. And so that's what I'm bringing my perspective from that, for that from that angle and not, uh, I don't mean to speak uh, authoritatively or anything uh, as the emperor of the left or anything, <laughs> if that ever comes across to my toe. <laughs> No, I don't think that comes across at all because that's not what you're doing. You're clearly, um, you know, learning and we're all experiencing this at the same time and in real time. And I think that's really important. Um, and I appreciate that. And I'm glad that I have you as a co-host uh, to do that with. So thank you. Well, thank um, you and thank everyone. Yeah, thanks, y'all. Have a good one. As always, thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. For more information about the project, please follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and wherever else you get your social media by going to at leftpoc, or you can check us out on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Please take care of yourselves, your loved ones, and protect one another. Uh, have a good one.